Well, good evening. Welcome to Hope here tonight. Uh, we are so thankful to have you here. My name is Ben. I'm one of your pastors here. Uh, we are excited to see you and your family as you come to worship and as kids get involved in youth programming. We started last week. Uh, it's a wonderful uh, time of the year. We're excited for it. I was reflecting this last Monday about the, the fact that there's certain moments in our lives uh, that we will never forget, that we will always remember. One of those for us was this past Monday, as it was 9-11. But if I were to ask almost any adult in this room, where were you at during that day? What were you doing? What was going on in your life? My guess is that you'd pretty much be able to tell me everything that was going on that certain time period uh, in your life. And uh, although I was alive during that time, I was pretty young, so I don't remember the exact details of that particular day. Uh, but there are days in my life that I, I know I'll always remember and never forget. One of those was November 15th of 2012. Uh, as a high school student, normal day, uh, about ready to go to school for the day. And it was just this beautiful, brisk morning, not too cold, not too warm. Uh, the sun was shining and hopped in my red pickup like I did every day and began driving to school. Uh, everything was going well. I was about a mile away from our home and went up this hill that I had gone up hundreds of times before, and for the first time, my vehicle began to do this. And I hit the side of the road, and I began to roll. This is my pickup. That day, uh, I often think about why, but for whatever reason, that day the Lord decided to spare my life. That day very easily could have been my last day on this earth, but for whatever reason, he, he kept me here. And I just think, what would have happened that day if I would have, you know, passed away, didn't make it, came face to face with the Lord, and he said, Ben, your time on earth is over. Didn't see this coming. Uh, but now your time for eternity has begun. Why should I let you into heaven? And I often wonder, what would I have said in that time in my life? I know what I'd say now, but what would I have said then? This is over 10 years ago. Would I have been ready I want to pose that question for you tonight. If you, tonight, I pray this doesn't happen to anyone, but you're driving home, you turn a corner, someone doesn't see you, they ram into your vehicle and you come face to face with the Lord and he asks you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? I think that there's no greater question that any of us in this room could ever be asked than that question. Because depending on how you and I respond to the Lord with that question, we'll either dictate if we're entering into his kingdom or if we're not. And what we're going to look at tonight are four verses that we just got a chance to hear that Jesus told for the purpose of each and every single one of us in this room tonight having full assurance that we will be able to enter in on that day and be welcomed into his kingdom. And he will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter in and rest. So before we dive into these passages, let's bow our heads before him and ask for his help. Father, we come before you tonight. And Lord, we... Do not take this lightly. We know that your word is truth. And we know, Lord, that you are the one alone who leads us to eternal life. And so, Father, as we open up this passage tonight, we ask that you would speak to us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Make it clear. And I pray, Lord, that you would lead us all to your everlasting kingdom. Open our hearts, Lord, to receive what you have in store. We ask this in Jesus' name and all of God's people said. Amen. We're starting a brand new series tonight on the Sermon on the Mount. This was the very first sermon that Jesus Christ ever preached uh, as he uh, began his uh, early ministry. 
And this is considered to be the greatest sermon ever preached of all time. That doesn't mean that we're gonna preach the greatest sermons you've ever heard of all time, uh, but we're gonna do the very best we can as your pastors to open up his words and, and look at them together and uh, unpack them so that all of us can really dive deep into what is it that Jesus was wanting us to understand, to glean uh, from these passages. And what we're gonna see from these four verses tonight is that Jesus paves the way for us. He makes it clear on that day what is gonna get us into eternal life but he also makes it clear what is not going to get us there. So let's look at our text, Matthew chapter five, verse 17. We're gonna look at this verse by verse. Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now let's keep in mind at this point, Jesus talking to a large group of people uh, many of which he probably never interacted with face-to-face. -face. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 2 tells us that his disciples were there on this day, so there's a few that he knows very, very personally. And he's preaching to them on this hillside, uh, this greatest sermon he's ever preached. And uh, as he's there, he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. He begins, Do not think. The reason he's saying do not think is because many people in his day and I'd even say many people in our day today think that Jesus coming to earth was for the purpose of abolishing the law and the prophets, getting rid of what was to, to bring something, to, to bring his own new revolution. But he's saying, don't, don't think that, don't go that direction. I haven't come to abolish anything. I have uh, specifically the law and the prophets. So what does he mean by the law and the prophets? Uh, just to begin, when we each have our own Bible, our Bible is made up of uh, two distinct parts. We have the Old Testament and we have the New Testament. The Old Testament is everything that was written before Jesus was born. And then the New Testament is everything that was written after Jesus was born, after his death on the cross and the resurrection. And so in this very period of time, as he's talking to them, the Bible that he's referring to did not consist of the New Testament yet because it had not yet been written. Everything he was referring to was what had been written, which was the Old Testament. And so when he says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets, uh, when he says the word law, he's referring to the first five books of the Old Testament, uh, which is referred to as the Torah. Uh, these were the, the books thought to have been written by Moses. And he's uh, making it very clear, don't think that everything that you've learned from Moses uh, that they had built their lives upon, he's like, I didn't come to get rid of that and, and to bring a new message. But then he also says, I didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets. And what does he mean by prophets? A prophet is someone who speaks on behalf of God. And so in this, he's referring to the rest of the Old Testament, the rest of all of those other books that were written by prophets, those that were written by people who spoke on behalf of God. So he says, I didn't come to abolish everything that you've built your lives on. I have come to fulfill it. I've come to fulfill it. What does that mean that Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets? It means two things, very, very important. It means that Jesus, in fulfilling the law and the prophets, means that he obeyed every single one of the 613 Old Testament laws to perfection. I think about this. You and I break God's laws every single day. We have a sinful thought that comes in. We just broke his law. 
We do something we shouldn't do, we, we just broke his law. We don't do something we should, we broke his law. But Jesus lived his entire 33 years of life without one time breaking God's law. He lived his entire life in full obedience to God. He's the only human being who's ever done this. He's not just a good teacher. He is perfect God. And then when he went to that cross, what he was doing was he was taking our punishment upon himself, the punishment that all of us deserved for breaking God's law, even though he didn't deserve it. But he took it upon himself and then raised to life so that we could have resurrection life. So that's the first thing it means, that Jesus lived the perfect life that we never did, but that we should have. The second thing it means that Jesus fulfilled the law this is that he gave us a whole new lens to read the Old Testament. Up until this point, they had read the Old Testament, they had understood, but there was gaps of who it was talking to, every, talking about everything it was leading up to. And now it's saying that everything that they had ever done for their entire lives, everything they had read in the Old Testament, everything that they had learned, everything that they had built their very lives upon was leading them to this moment that every single thing that they had read in the Old Testament was pointing to Jesus. And now they could read the Old Testament and see Jesus in and through everything. These are just a couple examples. Uh, we don't have time to go through every Old Testament example. We'd be here all night. But Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, this is the very first chapter in all of Scripture. Then God said, let us make mankind in, what's that word? Our image, in our likeness. Why would one God say, let us make mankind in our image, our likeness? This is the first glimpse of the Trinity that we see in all of scripture, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit there at the very beginning of creation. If you go to the next uh, scripture, Jeremiah chapter 33, in those days at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. Verse 16, in those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. And this is the name by which it will be called. Verse 17, the Lord, our righteous Savior. Isaiah verse 9, chapter 9, verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Psalm chapter 22, verse one, it's likely you've heard these words before. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Did you know when Jesus said these words on the cross, he wasn't just making them up on the spot. He was saying scripture that had been written hundreds of years prior. Psalm 22, verse 14, he says, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is turned to wax. It is melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. King David wrote these words 700 years, not before Jesus was crucified, but before Jesus, or before crucifixion even was invented, that he wrote of crucifixion. Isaiah 53, four through six, surely he took up our pain 
and he bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, and the punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way, and yet the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, these are just a handful of passages that we can read and say, even before Jesus was born, each of these were just as true at that time. But now that they could see Jesus came and he lived this life, he died this death, he rose in the resurrection, what it did was it verified it. It told them that because of his resurrection, every single word that Jesus Christ had ever spoken to his people was true. If Jesus would have died on the cross and never raised to life, we would have never taken anything that he said to be true. We would have thought he was a lunatic, a liar. But because he rose from the dead, it verified every single truth that he ever spoke and said, everything that's been spoken is about Jesus Christ. Therefore, we don't get rid of the Old Testament. We cherish it because we recognize it's all about him, who he was, what he would do by going to a cross to take your sin, to take my sin upon himself, and then to raise to life three days later. See, that's why um, we see Jesus says in verse 18, our second verse, for truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Man, I wish that we could have more time to unpack this. I bet we could spend probably an hour just on this one verse because there's just so much here. That, that first uh, phrase, very truly I tell you, it's likely you've maybe heard this phrase before. Uh, it's very common. Jesus would say this back then. We hear this uh, 23 times in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, 19 times in Mark, 10 times Luke, uh, 25 times in the Gospel of John. Very truly I tell you. And what he's telling us is when he says this is, listen up. What I'm about to tell you is very, very important. Open your eyes. Open your ears. Lean in. You don't want to miss this. And then he says that phrase, until heaven and earth disappear. And man, that phrase has just stumped me for years. I've wondered, what is Jesus talking about? You know, he says, until heaven and earth disappear. Like, you know, when I think of heaven, we're taught heaven is eternal life. Jesus saying, is heaven going to disappear? Does heaven actually have an expiration date where this is not going to be eternal life? But then you look back at the whole verse in context and you realize that's not what Jesus is saying, but he's making this drastic statement to prove a point. He's saying in the rest of the, the verse, he says, uh, not, uh, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter or the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law. What he's saying is the moment that heaven passes away, that's when we can get rid of all of scripture. The moment that heaven is gone, we can get rid of the Old Testament. Well, that's his point. Heaven is never gonna be gone. Therefore, we should never get rid of any of scripture. You see, the word of the Lord stands forever. There is no beginning and end. This is the book that we hold to all the way back 2,000 years ago, and it's the same book that you and I hold to every single day today. We don't get rid of it. We cherish it because we recognize it is all about him. He says this, this is to be the case until all is accomplished, which is what he did by perfectly obeying every requirement of the law. 
And then dying is the final blood sacrifice for your sins and for mine, and then defeating death itself by being raised to life again. And so the question that we need to answer here tonight is, okay, we, we understand this, right? Jesus lived this life. He died on the cross. He, he obeyed the law to perfection. All the Old Testament is about him. Here's the question. Why does this matter? What does that mean for you? What does that mean for me? Why is any of this important? What does this mean for our lives and our relationship with God and our eternity? And that's where we get to verse 19, that Jesus begins to shift and make it more personal, make it very, very tangible. Listen to what Jesus says, verse 19. He says, therefore, because of all of this, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So let's pause there and, and just reflect. First, I think uh, the, uh, an important thing for us to notice is that there's nothing that you and I can do to dictate our status in the kingdom of heaven. I can't ensure that I'm going to be great. I can't ensure that I'm going to be made little. Uh, if you remember, there's a, a passage in Mark chapter 10 where uh, Jesus has two disciples, James and John. They come to Jesus uh, asking to be one at his right, one at his left in the coming kingdom. They are asking to be seated with Jesus in glory. They're asking, Lord, let us have power and authority with you when you uh, ascend into heaven. And if you remember, Jesus just responds by saying, you don't know what you're asking. Those positions, those, those places have only been uh, laid aside by my Father in heaven. That's not something that we can dictate if we're going to be great. That's something that uh, our Father in heaven is the one who outlays that for us. But at the same time, then Jesus says, well, here, here's how we can at least know uh, some kind of idea of what happens here. If you take my word, if you take uh, the scripture, and if you even disobey just a little bit of it, and if you teach other people to do the same, to, to not take it seriously, to, to go your own way, he said, you're going to be called least in his kingdom. But if you, if you take my word and if you uphold it in your life, you obey my commands and you teach other people to obey my commands, you'll be called great in the kingdom of heaven. This is this reality. He's telling us, you know, what's going to get us little and what's going to make us great. Uh, and it tells us a couple things. The first is that Jesus is upholding obedience. He's saying we are called as God's people to obey his commands, to live a life uh, living for righteousness and repenting of anything that is wicked, uh, to live a life trying to follow the commands of God. But then the one thing that he's also making clear that we're gonna close out with here is that in our seeking out and striving for obedience, we will inevitably fall short. We will never be able to completely, fully obey everything that the Lord has commanded. And then, so what does that mean for us? Let's look at verse 20. Jesus says, for truly I tell you, there it is again, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Man, that's a drastic statement. We go from verse 19 where he's saying, okay, you... Uh, don't take the law seriously. You encourage others to do that. You're going to be least in the kingdom. You obey my law. You encourage others to obey. You're going to be great in the kingdom. So both of you are still in the kingdom. But then we get to verse 20 where he says, if you do this certain thing, you will not 
inherit the kingdom of heaven. So for the very first time, he's showing, hey, this is something that's very serious. This is not going to get you there. And what he says is, is dumbfounding. Unless your righteousness surpasses the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. This was insanity for Jesus to say, the teachers and the Pharisees of the law were the most righteous people of his day. They prayed more than anybody else. They read more scripture than anybody else. They were more well-versed. They led more people. They taught more people than anybody else. They wore fine, the finest robes. They were the, you know, the finest people. Everything about them was they were the untouchable. They were the most holy people. How could we surpass any of those people? And that's the point that Jesus is making. Because the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, as much as they were outwardly praying all these fancy prayers, they were inwardly far from God. They weren't praying these fancy prayers to please God. They were trying to please the people around them. See, outwardly they were alive, but inwardly they were dead. Outwardly they loved God, they loved people. Inwardly they hated God. Jesus called them out for that constantly. They hated people. They loved themselves. They loved money. They loved power. They loved success in their own status. You see, they found no need in their life for Jesus. In their own minds, they had earned everything. They had done all the right things. They had made all the right requirements. They had earned their way to eternity. But this is what Jesus is saying is that in all of their works, in dismissing the work of Christ, they thought their works alone could get them into eternity. But here's the question. If our own good works could get us into heaven, Jesus would have never had to die in the first place. Think about that. Why would Jesus have had to die if we could have got there by ourselves? So I just want to come back to this question that we began with here tonight. If you came face to face with the Lord today and he asked you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? What would be your response? My hope and prayer for you tonight is that your response would not be, well, I've done this. Try not to do that. I haven't been as bad as that person. I've been better than this person. And try to, you know, it's all about your merit. It's all about your standing. It's all about what it is that you've done. Have you ever heard that phrase WWJD before? What does WWJD stand for? What would Jesus do? I heard this recently. The gospel is not what would Jesus do. Now go and do it. It's not the gospel. The gospel is, what did Jesus do? Now believe it. Believe it. It's not about us trying to do this ourselves, but it's about us looking to the one who wasn't just good, but who was perfect, and yet went to the cross on our behalf, and not trusting in my own ability, my own goodness, my own righteousness, to ever be able to please the Lord in itself, but placing all of my faith, all of my trust, all of my foundation of my life upon Christ who has accomplished everything by giving his life and believing that with everything I have and declaring along with all of the reformers who reformed the church just like Martin Luther and saying it's not about my merit, but it is about his grace alone. It's not about my works, it's by faith in his work. It's not about myself or Anybody else, it's about Christ alone. It's not about the traditions that I've done, all the things I've done right. It's about what scripture has taught me as the foundation. 
And it's not for my own glory, but it is for the only glory of God. When we stand before him, may we say we are only here by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone, according to scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. And in so doing, when we proclaim that together, we will hear those beautiful, beautiful words. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter in and rest. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge tonight that your word is a lamp on our feet and a light for our path. Father, I pray that you instill in us tonight a full trust in Christ. And Lord, that you would forgive us of our sin, make us new, transform us, change us by that power and that reality, and open up our hearts to receive him as the king and the savior of our lives. We love you, Lord. We thank you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen.